0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW group. Void are prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 288th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most influential producers in the history of television, a man best known for creating and producing the landmark variety sketch series Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, which ran on NBC from 1967 through 1973, paving the way for the likes of other shows, including Saturday Night Live and Key Peel. Peele, and who was also behind The Best on Record, an early precursor of the Grammys, which ran on NBC in the 1960s, Real People, one of the earliest examples of reality TV, which ran on NBC from 1979 through 1984, the American Comedy Awards, which ran on several different networks between 1987 and 2001, and was revived in 2014, and many other memorable shows and specials, including most recently "Still Laughing," "The Stars Celebrate," a terrific tribute to the original Laughing, which was recorded at the Dolby Theater on March 8th and dropped on Netflix on May 14th. The great George Schlatter. But first, I was joined at the offices of the Hollywood Reporter by our editorial director Matthew Bellany our television editor from the West Coast, Leslie Goldberg, senior writer for television, Mikey O'Connell, and our chief television critic, Dan Feinberg, to recap the 71st Emmy nominations that were announced on Tuesday morning. Guys, thanks for being here. I think the the first thing I'd like to tackle, Matt, is the HBO Netflix of it all. Where last year, after seventeen years, Netflix snapped HBO' streak of the most nominations, but that has flipped back this year.
3: What do you make of that? I I think Game of Thrones. I think this was yep. the Richard Plepler kiss off to AT and T, which uh, bought HBO, and right. then he, you know, had run HBO for decades, left the network earlier this year. This is all Game of Thrones, right? if Game of Thrones was not eligible this year, Netflix beats HBO. Right. So
1: if you took out the top nominee at Netflix, which was when they see us, if you take out both of the top nominees, HBO still wins by like 10.
3: Okay. That's true. But, We are heading into a future where Game of Thrones doesn't exist, or at least until the prequels come along, doesn't exist. So I think this is going to be the swan song of HBO's dominance, and they're going to really have a hard time beating Netflix going
2: forward. It does seem that way. I think it also sort of begs the question, though, does this FYC space that Netflix spends a lot of money and effort putting together, is that any more important than, say, a great, party that a lot of people in the industry go to on the night of the Emmys in terms of just currying favor with the industry. Who knows? But as we, you know, another interesting stat there just in terms of their their top shows, Game of Thrones, 10 acting nominations, which is pretty amazing. And when they see us, eight, it's like everybody you can think of, if we
3: had to, you had a minute to name everybody in these shows, they all got nominated. I mean, my theory on this stuff, and I'm curious to hear what the group thinks here, is that the average human person, doesn't matter if you're in the TV <laughs> Academy or not, can only watch about 15 shows per year. If you're really working hard. If you're, if you're trying hard yeah. and you watch them regularly. Right. So if you look at these nominations, people are going deep on certain shows. Shows that the Academy members clearly watched and liked. Fleabag, When They See Us, Game of Thrones, Everybody Watches, Barry, Beep. These are shows that not only did they get the top nominations, they're getting multiple supporting nominations, yeah. guest actor nominations. Coattails. And what I think is happening is that in this age of peak TV where there is so much stuff out there, people are really choosing the shows they like and they're voting for the people they actually watch. What do you guys think? I think 19 nominations
1: for Chernobyl really speaks to that because the limited space is Definitely quite crowded. And the lack of distribution of wealth there this year is remarkable. It was only five or six series. Maniac didn't even get nominations.
3: And that had that had two Oscar winners, or one Oscar winner and a nominee in yeah. Emma Stone and Jonah Hill. And a director who was an Emmy,
0: an Emmy winner. So, right. yeah, definitely Netflix did not put together that package thinking they were going to get zero nominations for it. To me, I think Netflix played things very, very well with When They See Us because a lot of those nominations that it got— are really kind of category-iffy. I think if you look at uh, Anjanu Ellis and Nisi Nash being in the lead actress category in the movie miniseries, that, that's ridiculous. Those are both supporting performances, but there was so much warmth for that miniseries, and deservedly so, that basically because Netflix distributed people correctly across categories, they were able to take advantage, which is well-played on their yeah, part.
4: Yeah, and, and just jumping on what Mikey said about the limited category, I mean, when you look at the numbers in the nominations by program, You've got Chernobyl at 19, When They See Us, which was Netflix's most nominated show at 16, and even Fosse Vernon was at 17 for FX. That's Those are three of the, the most nominated programs and they're all in the, in the
2: limited It category. was an incredible year for limited series and to the extent that not among the nominees in the limited series category for best limited series, no true detective, no the act, no catch twenty two with George clooney and all kinds of people involved with that. but I want to come back to matt Bellany's theory here of of people can only watch so many shows and they bet they're you know they they pick from those. We had a weird phenomenon here this year where you know this is the this t v academy has taken flack for years about sticking with shows for years and years even after they 've Jump the Shark, like Modern Family. And yet this year, they actually reconsidered a lot of shows that they had previously overlooked. Whether it's Fleabag, which for its first season had no nominations. Killing Eve only had two for its first season. This time, it's nominated both lead actresses, not just Sandra Oh, drama series. You've got Shits Creek, and it's for its first season fourth or fifth season is nominated for comedy series and lead actor and lead actress in a comedy series had never been nominated for anything.
4: It's the first nominations for pop TV.
2: First nominations for pop TV. And, you know, so it's it's just interesting to me. Also, The Good Place getting its first series nomination for its third season. What do you make of that, Mikey, that, you know, even The Handmaid's Tale, which had its second season last year, Its last three episodes were not eligible then, but were sort of on a technicality, the hanging episodes rule, eligible now, and they got 11 nominations. It's wild how many nominations they got for not actually having a proper
1: season out there. (laughs) I don't know, Fleabag feels like a a real instance of... Academy voters not wanting to be out of step with the culture because I think that they would have been scolded heavily had that show not gotten a nomination for for series or at least writing or performance for Phoebe Waller-Bridge. But the volume it got is shocking and equally shocking, if not more, is the fact that Shits Creek was nominated <laughs> because... This isn't even really a pop show. This is an imported Canadian show that airs on pop TV <laughs> that everyone just watches on Netflix. Mm-hmm. No one was really actively campaigning behind that show. There's just goodwill for it. And there's a lot of goodwill for Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. But I, it's, I'm still flabbergasted.
3: But doesn't this speak to the whole nature of catch-up TV? Yes. Because, yes, the second season of Fleabag was the one that was eligible. Right. But I know, I just caught up to it this year and watched the first and some of the second season a couple months ago, because everybody was talking about it in my circle. Now, this is not a broad hit that you're going to see, you know, the, the flyover States, uh, (laughs) jumping for joy (laughs) with the nominations, but I think it's something that people in the industry kind of caught up to. And that's going to explain why some of these older shows re-entered the picture because people are watching them in different times than they usually would.
2: If you're not Netflix... People catch up to you. They don't see you the minute you hit the well, service. Well, even Netflix. Yeah. I
3: mean, I'm you know watching stuff. I watched some of the limited series when they came out, but I yep. discover stuff all the time. Or you hear about it because it got Golden Globe nominations. That's how I discovered uh, Dana Amora. Yep. And I just said, oh, well, I'm going to put that on my list. And then two months later, I catch up to it.
2: We should note that a few rookie shows did crack into the series categories on the drama side, Bodyguard from Netflix, but weirdly not its lead actor, Richard Madden, who won a Globe, but then and is in every scene of the show, but did not get nominated in the actor in a drama series category succession from HBO. Which we a- just,
3: can we just do a round of applause for Succession? <laughs> my favorite show. It's a great show. It's, it's, it's annoying great. that none of the actors got nominated. Very but, annoying. Yep. But for that show to get into the drama series category, even though I would argue it's a comedy. <laughs> very satisfying.
0: I have argued relentlessly that it's a comedy, a comedy, but I'm happy to see it there. And it's sort of reflective. You mentioned Bodyguard. Of just how weak the drama field is this year. I mean, whatever Peak TV is doing to comedy and limited series at this exact moment, drama has fallen way off to the wayside. And if it hadn't been for Game of Thrones this year, well, yes, Handmaid's Tale would have aired a season but even still these categories would be so thin and then heaven forbid they would have had to have nominated supporting actresses from Pose actors and actresses from Succession it would have been a much better field if they hadn't felt the need to give 10 acting (laughs) nominations to Game of Thrones well
2: and let's note the last rookies that made that got series nominations from FX on the drama side Pose and on the comedy side from Netflix Russian Doll, they did not get Dead to Me, which could have happened. But Christina
4: Applegate. Christina
2: Applegate, exactly, did get in for a lead actress in a comedy. And then the two big misses for rookie shows, Homecoming from Amazon on the drama side and the Kaminsky Method, which won the Golden Globe for best comedy, missing on the comedy side. That was probably Netflix's. Most painful miss.
3: I want. Can I make yeah, a quick point yeah. here about homecoming and Julia Roberts not getting nominated? I mean, one of the trends that I noticed this Emmy nominations was that movie stars did not automatically get Emmy nominations, and for years it was always the case that if you were a big movie star and you dipped your toe, you 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 know graced the presence of a television, you automatically got an <laughs> Emmy nomination. But if you look this year, huge movie stars got snubbed. You mentioned George Clooney for Catch-22, Julia Roberts for Homecoming, Emma Stone for Maniac, and Jonah Hill for Maniac, Jim Carrey for Kidding. Mm-hmm. A lot of people thought he would get nominated. Mm-hmm. Sasha Baron Cohen, the show got nominated, mm-hmm. but Sasha Baron Cohen did not get nominated as an actor mm-hmm. for Who's America. I mean, these are huge movie stars that did pretty prominent television this year and did not get nominated. I think it really speaks to the breadth and quality of what's on TV, where the Academy is no longer starstruck. Absolutely. Well, Leslie, I want to talk about the
2: broadcast situation here where, first of all, Big Bang Theory, one of the highest rated shows of the last several years on TV, went out with Without a big bang, that's basically MIA.
4: Yeah, its biggest nomination was for director Mark Sandrowski, who, if you remember, was the director who was added last year
2: <laughs> when they because they needed up. to have yeah. someone
4: from representing a multi-camera comedy yes. in that category. Yes, and then it was two other technical categories. But well, yeah, no acting nominations for Jim Parsons for season
2: for the final season. And even some of the stalwarts, the perennials from broadcasts, are missing this time. No Blackish, no Allison Janney from Mom, no Tracy Ellis Ross from Blackish, but. The big showing is from This Is Us on NBC. And I wonder if you can just comment on their nominations. And also, weirdly, I think, sort of to me, the comeback of Viola Davis for how to get away with murder from ABC.
4: That is, I mean, no disrespect to Viola Davis, yeah. but that show it has not been good in years. <laughs> ABC also just announced that, that the upcoming sixth season would be its final, as she's clearly not renewing her contract yeah. to come back
2: she's for out. more. I mean,
4: she doesn't need that show anymore, and right. she hasn't needed it for a long time. Right. But I think that speaks to her commitment to honoring her original contract even though the show is completely irrelevant. It right. has been for a long time. That's my favorite I'm new sorry. Emmy category
0: of the year is Outstanding Honoring of Commitment to a Long-Term <laughs> Network Series Contract. The,
3: yeah, we will call it the, the, the Honorable Contract Emmy. Yes,
4: uh, it's, it's, we're just going to rename it the Viola Davis and, uh,
2: and, uh, <laughs> Well, Constance Wu will not be winning it. So oh. be <laughs> still funny, still funny. So let's also note, uh, Leslie, that Chuck Laurie, who made the jump from network to streaming with his Netflix show, Kaminsky Method, is it a sort of that the tone of broadcast, which he's tried to bring t- to streaming, is people who just don't care for anymore at, in sort of uh, highbrow circles like TV Academy Voters? Or, or why does that show take a hit aside from its acting?
4: I mean, I honestly just think it speaks to the volume of television and, the, and as Matt said, the quality of some of the work that, that we're seeing here. I mean, Big Bang was nominated for comedy series for years and never won, and it, it lost to Modern Family more times than I can count. And then it just, all of a sudden, the, qual- the quality dipped off. It stopped getting nominated. Jim Parsons stopped getting nominated. And look, Parsons has, has won before. Maya Bialik has won before. One of my favorites, Bob Newhart, has mm-hmm. won, I think, twice in the guest category, But I mean, you know, for a final season that was actually quite good, you know, in Big Bang Theory standards, it's just there's too much TV and there's too much great TV. Yeah. Yeah,
3: And honestly, Chuck Lorre has never been an Emmy magnet. I mean, he even acknowledged it at the Golden Globes. Yeah, Yeah. Kaminsky was
4: the first major series award he's won in his career, which is mind boggling.
3: And, you know, the only reason we're talking about it now is because it won the Golden Globes, which, as we know, sometimes the Globes go their own way. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that much that he's not in that mix. One last
2: note on the broadcast side. Nobody is it seems is, is really crying tears about a total absence as far as I can see of Modern Family, which was, which was for years causing people to say what, you know, why are they still getting nominated? Now they are whimpering out uh, When is uh, their run is expected to end. In yeah.
4: It's ending next season, next season as well. But, you know, just really touching quickly on, on broadcast, we should note though that NBC was the third most nominated outlet overall, yes. trailing only HBO and Netflix. But and, by a lot. But by a, a considerable, <laughs> yes, considerable <laughs> lot. So 100, by a considerable lot. Yes. Yeah, I'm here all day. Um, <laughs> HBO had a, a record 137, Netflix had 117, yep. no one else t- was uh, three figures, NBC finished third with 58, but that's still over Amazon and yep. its billion dollar budgets. Right. And Amazon still, their output doubled from last year. It too. is,
0: but that's bloated by the 18 yeah. nominations for uh, Saturday Night Live, which they simply don't know how to categorize for mm-hmm. acting nominations. Mm-hmm. And then you have utterly ridiculous things like Robert De Niro getting nominated for sleepwalking through <laughs> occasional guest appearances as Robert Mueller. That, that's just, that is, even if you accept that Robert De Niro is Robert De Niro, which clearly he is, because who
3: else is he? That's an embarrassing nomination. That is that is beyond <laughs> At least complacent. they didn't nominate Baldwin for Trump again. Oh, thank yeah. God for that, sure. That fell yeah. off and again. Matt Damon got nominated for the excellent Brett Kavanaugh. When yes. he was very funny, but... <laughs> and Adam Sandler
4: well. for his emotional heartfelt. Yeah, Sandler's, gonna win, Sandler right? Sandler's gonna win, Sandler will win. Sandler's
3: gonna win, because that was an amazing performance, and I feel like there's a there's a tailwind behind him. People are coming around being like, you know what? There's a reason why Adam Sandler was famous in the first place. The one place where broadcast networks still do quite well is
2: in the variety talk series category where it's the late-nighters. And so this year, as expected, Corden, Colbert, and Kimmel are representing broadcasts there. But that's actually one of their weaker showings because the other three spots are, are not among the big four. You've got Trevor Noah back Comedy Central the Daily Show, TBS's Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, Sam B back, and John Oliver, who's going to win
3: again for last week tonight on HBO. Wait, you think John Oliver's going to win again? I, <laughs> so, no, I, you, this is a legit question. I actually think that Colbert has a chance this year. That would be nice to have because just variety. because of how right. newsworthy a lot of what he's done has been. Yeah. Typically, this show goes, this award goes to the one that has the biggest buzz. Right? Mm-hmm. It was always The Daily Show, and then it was Colbert, and now. It's it's been John Oliver, but John Oliver, he hasn't done the same level of kind of stunts this season that he did in the previous seasons, and I think... I could be wrong. You guys are the experts. I think Colbert has a chance That's to take No, that would,
2: be, that would be a big deal to break the, the Oliver streak, which is becoming Stewart-esque. He had, he had dominated for years, uh, and then the Colbert
3: big, broke his streak. And Colbert broke it. And yeah. the big news is Trevor Noah yes. keeps his nomination despite the Green Book advertising <laughs> campaign that yeah. supposedly outraged some older uh, Academy members <laughs> by telling—he t- had these billboards around L.A. saying, don't Green Book this right, one, right. basically— referring to the Oscars, giving the right. uh, best picture award to the least deserving. Right. Like or, don't be
2: out of touch. Don't that be would,
3: out of touch. Exactly. And so it is the exact same six as last year, which is going to be
2: disappointing to Jimmy Fallon, who is the only 1130 late nighter from broadcast, not to be included for like the third year in a row. All. Presumably dating back to the Trump hair ruffling incident. but let's... Also to general mediocrity, but otherwise. Yeah, just, oh, oh, he does a
3: different... Well, the big thing to me is the Bill Maher snub. Yeah, Bill, Bill out Maher. Bill Maher used to be a perennial yep. in this category. And I, I mean, I, I, I love think Bill him. Maher's yeah. funny still. Yeah, I agree. And he does something that's so different from the other guys. Yep. But, you know, maybe it was the N-word thing a couple of years ago, or maybe he's just too political. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Well, Dan, close us out with a critic's perspective on this, because there are some things I know that you must be very happy about, like. Fleabag like Killing Eve, I would guess. But there are some big misses this year that are hard to understand, not just Richard Madden, but let's talk about Pamela Adlon missing for the first time in, in years for better things. Ray Seahorn, there was the season where everyone thought she'd finally get in there for Better Call Saul, and on and on and on. So just what stood out to you the most?
0: I think there were a lot of things that could have made more of a smash, but we were talking about sort of how the— attention, I guess, coalesced around certain kind of bigger shows. And so... Uh, You know, if you ask me what I'm surprised by, I'm surprised that Fleabag got 11 nominations. I'm happy about it. All of those supporting actor nominations, but somehow Andrew Scott, who was the most discussed person Mm -hmm. this side of Phoebe (laughs) Waller-Bridge, didn't get a nomination. That's baffling to me. You know, on a personal level, I'm really disappointed that Rami couldn't get a nomination Mm -hmm. for writing or directing. I didn't expect to get a series nomination or anything. That'd be foolish. Uh, Then you sort of go deep on things like America to me not getting nominated on the non-scripted series category is just an embarrassment. And that was
4: your best program of the
0: year it, last year. It was. And it, and it really is so far above anything else that was nominated in that category that it just goes to show. And similarly, the TCA Awards showed the same thing. People just didn't watch that show. And I don't know if that's stars' fault or someone else's fault. But uh, there are a lot of good nominations here. There are a lot of things that make me reasonably happy, and there are far fewer things that make me pissed off and irate (laughs) than some years. So I think I can concentrate on that if I need to, but there are still good shows out there that people could be tuning into that got zero nominations, including, as you say, Better Things, Rami. Baskets got zero nominations mm-hmm. when Louie Anderson used to be a regular and was a former winner in that category. So, FX actually had a really, I would say, fairly negative day, uh, Always yeah. Sunny once again, um, zero nominations. Yeah,
4: 50 nominations last year for FX, 32
2: this year.
0: And even yeah. something like the like Fosse Verdon that did very well. Yeah, it could it could have under different circumstances gotten twenty five yeah, nominations. Yeah, there should have been
2: Norbert Leo Butts. There should have been some other stuff there. Oh,
1: five years ago that show would have gotten twenty five nominations.
0: And so and so the fact that it's down to seventeen is again reflective of the depth of that category. There's just there's just nothing to be right. said other
2: than there's a lot of good TV. Well, thank you all for joining us. It's going to be fun. We have now a few months to think about all this because the Emmys are not until September, but we look forward to bringing on a bunch of nominees to be guests on this show. We encourage you to tune into TV's Top 5 with Dan and Leslie, which every week looks at the world of TV and to read Mikey's coverage in the magazine and on the website. And that is all for now. Thanks again. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks. And now for my interview with George Schlatter. Mr. Schlatter, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the podcast. Glad to be here. Always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
5: Birmingham, Alabama. And my father was a salesman. My mother was a concert violinist. My aunt was a concert pianist. Wow. And where do you think the sense of humor comes from? Is it something you're mom. born with? Your mother? Well, My mother. She was a funny lady. She was a brilliant violinist. But she really loved comedy. Uh, things like, for instance, there were four boys... One April Fool's Day, we came downstairs for breakfast and we would eat like animals, you know, because we were four boys. And she took cotton material, like gauze, and cut it in circles and put it into pancakes. So we came down and attacked that pile of pancakes. (laughs) We all wound up with a mouthful of gauze. (laughs) That was my mother's sense of humor. She just laughed till I was hurt.
2: When did your own sense of humor start to emerge? Was it sort of... Pretty much at birth. Yeah? Yeah. So you were the class clown.
5: Pretty much so, yeah. yeah. It was it was the way I got by. I mean, I survived through my sense of humor. So did she. I mean, where we lived, we weren't very rich, you know. So laughter was our main pastime. Yeah, music has been a part of my background. Yeah, I studied opera, but comedy has been my reason for survival. Yeah, well, so most people don't imagine
2: they can make a life and a career in comedy or music. It's they may want to, but it doesn't seem that plausible for most people. What were you thinking your future would hold when you went off to Pepperdine?
5: Well, I went to Pepperdine on a football scholarship. Then I wasn't that good a football player, so I had to go into comedy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But you actually got injured,
5: right? Oh, yeah. I was at Pepperdine, and they recently did a tribute to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, the dean of Pepperdine stood up and said that they were doing a tribute to me in spite of the fact that they could find no record that I had ever attended class, <laughs> but they did notice that I had played football. Yeah. So whatever it was, a year or
2: so into your time there, you get injured to the point where you can no longer play football. Yep, yep. How did, I guess at that point, the theater department, or
5: how did that open up to you? What, How did you end up there? They told me I had to have some job, and Jay Krauss, who was the head of the staging, who eventually wound up the set designer on Laugh-In. Wow. Said I had to come in there and do something, and I said, well, "Do what? I play football." Mm-hmm. He said, "No, no, you have to, you have to have a real job." Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, this is a disappointment."
6: <laughs> so, so,
5: so I then started working. I worked on the stage with the productions on stage.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Out of that, I got a job. This is, this is boring. Not but I at got a, all. Not at all. I got a job in the mail room at MCA wrapping window cards. But this is so wait you dropped out of Pepperdine Pepperdine is well, in no, the what LA area was, what happened was yeah. I'm not really proud of this but what happened was we had a football scholarship and we had a scrimmage with Loyola and one of the guys that I had boxed mm-hmm. said uh, he was a professional and they asked me were you a professional I said no I said we would get a radio or something mm-hmm. but it wasn't like money mm-hmm. they said that's like money so anyhow they cancelled my football really? scholarship okay. Yeah. so then I went out looking at something and I went to MCA, which was the biggest talent agency. Yeah. And I got a job wrapping window cards in a warehouse. What are window cards? They were for one-nighters. They'd send the big bands out on one-nighters, and they would have cards they'd put in the windows of the different auditoriums. And so uh, that's where I started out. I got $25 a week.
2: In that first week at MCA, I think you met somebody that you would have a lifelong friendship with, right? It was sort of inadvertently, right? I think um, it was a big
5: deal when this guy with his blue eyes would show up at the offices. Oh, Mr. Sinatra. Oh, sure. Well, it was my first week at MCA and I was in the corner office delivering some mail and uh, the whole uh, building came alive because Sinatra had come in the front door and they all came down the hallway and I was there in my gray gabardine suit. Everybody else was wearing black and I had on a gray gabardine suit and Sinatra walked into the office and I was just standing there. So he walked in, and he looked, and he said, is this the contract, and pointed to it. I said, yeah. That's the, he said, have you read this? I said, well, yeah. he said, is it okay? I said, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and he signed it and handed it to me. And now, everybody in the room thought I was the made guy or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so. And meanwhile,
2: uh, you'd never seen this contract.
5: I'd never seen the contract. All <laughs> I knew is I was speechless meeting <laughs> right. Frank Sinatra. Right, right. And uh, What year about is this? I don't know, two thousand and zero. No, I don't know, no. but anyhow, he uh, uh, he looked at me and he said, "I have ties older than this guy," <laughs> and uh, so he signed the contract and handed it to me. And he looked, and everybody in the room thought I was some kind of a maid, Gavone or something. You know,
2: <laughs> but and, in fact, what but, you were then spending your days doing was. Ultimately, after you sort of graduated from the mailroom, it was about booking...
5: Yes, then I started booking piano players for a while. For nightclubs, Uh, right? Yeah, for nightclubs. And then uh, eventually that led to a job booking acts in Vegas. Mm. And uh, then I got a job managing Ciro's on the Sunset Strip, that along with booking the shows in Vegas. And so I wound up knowing everybody, the variety performers. Yeah, And so NBC decided to go into color... And they were going to do a variety show with Dinah Shore an hour a week. And they needed somebody to book the guest stars. Well, I knew every act in show business from Vegas and Ciro's. And so I started booking the Dinah Shore show.
2: And that was the first job in television. Yeah. That's 1960.
5: Whoa, yeah. So
2: let me stop, though, before we get into your television chapter and just talk about nightclubs. Because the way they existed then, they don't exist anymore in terms of having great performers come and do an act, whether it's... I mean, people talk about Martin and Lewis, for instance, that they were never better than when they were doing live nightclub stuff, you know, that the movies didn't capture it, that the Colgate Comedy Hour didn't capture it, stuff like that. What was the appeal of a place like
5: Ciro's, which is legendary? Well, it was they came out on stage and they were live. You see, the reason why Vegas happened and Ciro's and McComb all those places and the Copacabana... Is they saw live performances. So there was no video then. There was no television then. So you come in and you saw the real people in live performances. How big were like Ceros for instance, how many people could, could fit in there at one time? Suros, if we went way beyond the fire limit, it would be like <laughs> 600 people. Oh, wow. So it was big. Yeah, but they came in and Martin and Lewis hit that stage and it just blew you away. They were people that performed at Saros? Yeah, Martin and Lewis and uh, Danny Thomas and uh, you know all of those Sammy Davis eventually. And it was a live performances, a little stage mm-hmm. and uh they came in and attacked it. And Why
2: it was, do you think you were good at being a booker?
5: I was I was fearless. And uh, I was funny, and I could go up to the performers and con them into working for far (laughs) less than they were worth. And I was having a good time. So then, eventually, when they brought color into television and they booked the Dinah Shore show for an hour a week, you know, and I went in to book the guests on the Dinah Shore show, and eventually I became a producer on the Dinah Shore show. So it's a whole career full of accidents and. uh, Adventures.
2: One last nightclub related question. I've read different accounts that and this might have been earlier than you, maybe not. But like as a result of prohibition, the nightclubs really became a hotbed of, I guess you would call it the mafia, right? Where did you encounter that a lot? Mafia is such a strong word. Because
5: there, there, there,
2: people could get drinks, right? And there was...
5: were some. There were some people with questionable backgrounds who indeed <laughs> might have been referred to as yes. uh, people on the wrong side of, you know. Right. But they they ran. It was much neater then. There was no. They just said what to do, and everybody did it. Right. So, but I knew them personally yeah. because of Vegas and zeros.
2: Is there anyone particularly memorable from that side of the, I guess, well, the business? yeah,
5: they all were. Yeah. You, you don't forget those people. <laughs> <laughs> but I was young. I was yeah. like 19 years old, you know. And so I knew them all, and yeah. uh, they would occasionally come to me for favors. Right. And uh, they were colorful people. Yeah. And they came to me once, and they said, we're very pleased and grateful for what yous did. And I said, I'm glad I could help. And they said, no, we want to do something for yous.
6: Mm-hmm. And
5: I said, no, I'm fine. I don't need anything. Yeah. No, no, no. Be serious. What do you need? <laughs> I said, just, just nothing. I'm glad. Just thank yous fine. And they yeah. said, you don't need anything? I said, no. They said, OK, who don't yous like? <laughs> well, when somebody asks you that, yeah. who has a lump under their coat, right. you say, oh, I'm out of here. Yeah, so. Right. You know, One other thing that I guess was true of
2: nightclubs and and Vegas particularly at the time was the issues of segregation, right? You stuck up for Sammy Davis Jr. in Vegas. What was the situation there?
5: Well, Sammy worked at Ciro's, and uh, he was coming down from a meeting with me when he had the automobile accident. And he lost the eye, Um. and uh, we booked him into his comeback with the glass eye was going to be at the zeros, mm-hmm. and of course he hit that stage and the, and the town went crazy mm-hmm. and from there I convinced the owner of the Frontier to book Sammy and at that point black artists didn't work Vegas maybe for a few days but never longer than that and I told him I said I just booked Sammy Davis for six weeks he said are you crazy six weeks and he's black I said yeah he's still black and I said <laughs> uh, I said he's the greatest entertainer ever he said but you can't book him for six weeks I said I just did yeah and I said, and by the way, the audience will be mixed. You're going to have black people. said, you can't have black people. Yes, we can. And he's going to do six weeks, and you're going to allow black people to see the show. And the owner was just going crazy. But anyhow, Sammy did. He opened in Vegas, and the rest is history. He just attacked that audience like <laughs> like you've never seen. He came on that stage, and it was just electric. It was magic, like and, an I avalanche. I mean, the,
2: the issues even extended, though, to where he could stay,
5: right? I mean, oh, he... yeah. Well, at that point, he could stay at the hotel. I said, okay. Sammy's going to, first of all, he's going to do on stage. It's going to be for six weeks. He's going to stay in the hotel, mm-hmm. and you're going to allow black people to see the show. And they said, absolutely not. I said, if you don't, he's going to play uh, Macombo. Right. And so he opened, and, of course, the audience went crazy. And right. from then on, Sammy worked... Any place he wanted to work, right? He was perhaps one of the greatest performers that ever lived.
2: Amazing, yeah.
5: And I guess there's an example
2: of somebody who there isn't one movie that people can point to and say this really captures what he was like, or a TV show, or a roast, or anything. I guess you really had to see him live, right?
5: Yeah, we did a salute to Sammy that yeah. was pretty awesome, yeah. and they ought to see that. It I, was yeah. it was all of the people that knew him and yeah. loved him, and it was a television salute, and he the uh, Lost the eye. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, they also just told me he had cancer. Uh-huh. And uh, so we did this show, and Sammy and his wife, AltaVise, and uh, Barbara Sinatra, everybody sat ringside. And Sammy came out, and everybody came out and did tribute to Sammy. Nice.
2: Wasn't that the same group I had read somewhere that were you mugged with them? You, You, Barbara Sinatra, there was something... Uh, yeah, that's yeah, but
5: that the mugged is a strong word. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like they used words like mugged and mafia mm-hmm. and mob and whatever. No, we were coming home from dinner with Barbara Sinatra, yeah. and there were three young gentleman of uh, questionable origin stopped us, and they wanted uh, my watch and whatever. And one guy came at me, and that was a mistake. And (laughs) with my questionable background, I was able to discourage them from pursuing my (laughs) bodily damage much more. So we survived that. And the next day, the police came to the the house to see who this guy was, got taken care of (laughs) three people of questionable yeah, origin. Right, right. And uh, that that hit and that was kind that of That was a big story, yeah.
2: All right, so you you start to break into television with the Dinosaur show. Suddenly, as a result of booking talent to do that, you are now a producer for the first time, right? That's yeah. the new term for you. And then I guess there was a string of these shows where you were now a producer, including the Judy Garland show, which you were only associated with for a few episodes before Norman Jewison, I think, was brought into her r- Where did you get all of this stuff?
5: Oh, yeah, you did some, some, of, some of it is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was doing the Dinah Shore. I was producing the Dinah Shore show because I knew all of the acts in show business, right. and I could book them. So right. those were the people who were going to be the guest stars. So mm-hmm. that's how I became producer of the Dinah Shore show. Right. Subsequently, they signed Judy Garland to do a series. And I was very nervous about meeting Judy, because how do you audition for Judy Garland when right. you're 19, 20 years old? And so I, she suddenly appeared in the room, and she said, so you're George Slaughter. I said, so, so you're Judy Garland. <laughs> I said, I don't care what you may have heard, there's no truth to the rumor that I'm difficult. <laughs> and she said, you're difficult? I said, see, even you've heard it, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so she said, let's go have a glass of wine. And we did. It. We were very, very tight friends, and right. uh, I realized that Judy Garland loved to laugh, She was comic and she was funny. And so we had a lot of fun with. And I realized also that what they were doing then with television was this thing about taping bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. Judy Garland showed up at 8 o'clock and did the show top to bottom. And the the network said, that's no way to do a show. I said, that's the show. She's a nightclub performer, she's a theater performer. We're going to show up at 8 o'clock, baton down, and everything. So she came out on stage and did the show. But they wanted Judy Garland to be Dinah Shore. They wanted you know. her to be lovely Dinah, you know, from the south, the right. high y'all. And uh, that wasn't Judy at all. Judy hit that stage like a battalion of Marines, you know, and she just took no prisoners. And I said, I can't do the Dinah Shore show with Judy Garland. Right. And they became critical of my indifference to their demands. Right. It's a nice way to That's be. That's a very nice way, yeah. A nice way of saying I was a pain in the ass. But, <laughs> but in 19, I could get away with yeah. everything because right. of the people I knew in Vegas. Then they decided that they were going to have a different direction with the Judy Garland show, and that's when they brought in Norman Jewison. Just a few
2: questions about that time that you were on that show, if you can clarify the veracity of
5: these things. Uh-oh. Did Judy Garland like fart jokes? Loved them. <laughs> Judy, Garland, Judy Garland not only loved fart jokes, but she knew every fart joke in existence. Give me an example. Well, no, no, but I mean, because there's a difference in me telling a fart yeah. joke and hearing and Judy, Judy Garland <laughs> telling a fart joke. But she she was body she was funny and she was a good friend yeah and she sure did work well for me
2: I loved that I had read you played over the rainbow in fart sounds and on at yes one point. we did we
5: orchestrated fart sounds and so that we had the chromatic scale <laughs> and you could play the piano play on a piano and it would come out fart sound I, I did that for her and she laughed so hard we almost blew a taping you know right, right. she just but she was I loved her she was an adventure
2: well another over the Rainbow related thing that I read that I got a kick out of. One day, Schlatter says, Garland was complaining about the lights or something. So he started singing
5: Over the Rainbow. Yes. Can you pick up the story from there? Judy was upset about something and uh, she would get upset. But yeah. her getting upset was a reason for laughter. Yeah. you know. So she was complaining about the sound or something. So I started singing Over the Rainbow. And she said, what the hell are you doing? I said, I just thought if you were going to produce, I'd sing. And so she said, well, you're not. I think that was one of the first times I was fired. I've been fired a lot. I have been fired a lot. That's true.
2: So last question regarding that show which it's funny, it just came up on this podcast a few episodes ago when we were talking to Bob Mackey, who was one oh. of the costume designers on the show. He was reluctant to confirm this, but he ultimately said, look, yes, she, and this may have been later in the run, but she had a lot of issues, right? I mean, she would be, it was hard to get her to perform at a hundred percent because she
5: was dealing with it sounds like booze and I would drugs. Take, and... I would take Judy Garland at 10% yeah, yeah. for most performers at 100%. Yeah. She was not easy, but yeah. she was an adventure. Yeah. So anyhow, my ability to make her laugh yeah. was the way we got those shows done. Yep. So, so now, when we're getting ready to do the show, started doing the yep. show, she wanted Edith Head to do the costumes. Yes. Well, Edith Head was a motion picture director that took weeks to do what we had to do in days. And so uh, I said, there's a young man who's the assistant to Rhea Guyon. Yes. So I set up a meeting with Bob Mackey and Judy Garland, and violins played. It yeah. was just a, a love affair at first sight. Right. And he came in with some sketches that just took her breath away. So he became a designer. He was also not only this that designer, he was the therapist. I mean, if I had a problem with Judy, I'd send Bob Mackey in <laughs> to talk to her. She came out an angel. Yeah, And yeah. Uh, he was brilliant as a designer but also brilliant as a friend. Yes. So I cherish the times I spent with Bob Mackie.
2: Yeah, and he just won a Tony. Couple years sure, he ago,
5: he's won every award yes. you can yeah, win. He's true. won everything, everything but the, you know the, the Society of Prevention of yeah. Cruelty to Animals. He's <laughs> won every award. He's got more. He had to add shelves to keep right. his award. Well, the, and you two are and of course you know he looks about nine years old. I still, know it's you
6: amazing. Know. It's amazing.
2: So, what was the world like before there were the Grammys? Was there a need? to recognize music that you wanted to get involved with? How did there end up
5: being a show? Well, it ended up being a <laughs> so See, my, my whole background requires explanation. There was no Grammy Awards, right. but we put together a group of recording artists, and we invented the Grammy. There was no award. There was nothing. Whoever we booked, there were the uh, Grammy Awards. And uh, This is a show called The Best on Record. Best, but we called it The Best on Record, and For we NBC. went out and got everybody we could get we gave It wasn't even a Grammy Award at that point. Right. All of the awards we gave out had Henry Mancini's name on them because <laughs> there was no money and there was no right. award. And so uh, we would go out and we would get people, and that was the first five years, of uh, four years, five years, of uh, the Grammy Awards were people that uh, they were all big stars, but they were... But it
2: wasn't literally the Grammy Awards. It was
5: a variation. It was called the Best on right, Record, right. and uh, then that became the Grammy Awards. So really, it, it literally was what motivated them to create the Grammy Awards. that Yes, you... but, that was it. but then they wanted me to do one more year of the Grammy Awards, and I said, I can't do that. I'm going to go to the gym I'm giving awards to people. There was no voting. So yeah, I the... said, I'll do one more year if you let me do one show my way with no interference, no suggestions, totally my way. So they said yes, but they didn't really mean it. Right. But they signed a contract saying I could do a show without any, what we refer to now as adult supervision. Right. <laughs> and so that's when I went out and I got all of these young character people that I found and collected. And that was the group that I hired to do Laugh-In. Wow. So this and is... so they bought Laugh-In as a favor because I would do one more year of the Grammy Awards. Unbelievable. And so
2: did you have to do a pilot for Laugh-In?
5: No, but this was a thing where they said yeah. you would do one show my way with no interference. Right. So what we did was I got all of these people, and I put them in a studio, and we began taping. Mention
2: did, who those people are just for to remind you. Well, this for the
5: original group was yeah. Judy Carn, who'd done the show with Burt Reynolds, and Joanne Worley, and Flip Wilson was in that show, and Goldie Hahn. Mm-hmm. It was all of these young character people who were not sitcom people, And we're not movie stars. They were just very, very talented, attractive, funny people. How did you know about them? I'd rounded them up from different places, you know, nightclubs and whatever. As I say, I was booking Dinosaur. So I knew all of the young performers. We put them all into one show and then taped, just taped and taped and taped. And I put that all together. And when the network saw it, they said, This isn't a television show. I said, No, I didn't say that. It's just a new show. We, had, we,
2: we just have to remind listeners, if they're younger listeners, they have a reference point. Let's say with Saturday Night Live because it's still on, right? Yeah. So
5: you guys went on well, the Lord, air. Lorne Michaels was one of the. I know we're on. going to
2: come to that, but you, you go on with Laughing, January twenty second, nineteen sixty eight. The show runs through nineteen seventy three. There is no Saturday Night Live till nineteen seventy five. You guys set the format,
5: right? I hired Lorne Michaels as uh, one of the junior writers on Laughing, and he came in and uh, Cause he, he was, was a canadian comic canadian comic and with and uh, we we had a room full of these people but headed up with digby wolf who was yeah. a genius david panish they were a group of outcasts that were not right for sitcoms and they were not right for movies they were just right for an outrageous attack on the establishment that became known as laughing.
2: And let's just talk about what's going on in the world at the time you, so you guys go on in 1968, maybe yes. the most turbulent year yes. in American history.
5: Why was the country therefore responsive to what you guys were doing? Well, the country wasn't responsive. The country had never seen it. Yeah. And even the network wasn't responsive. The network, when they saw the show, were quite upset. They said, this isn't a television show. I said, it wasn't meant to be. This is an experience. And I said, you laughed, the audience laughed, and they're smarter than you are. (laughs) And so uh, uh, they said, you've got to loosen it up. So I said, of course. And we took out another three minutes, and we went on the air with this barrage of comedy about different subjects, because it was a time in history when there was many of the same problems we have today were problems then. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went on the air with this collection Of people And this collection of subjects we did jokes about, even back then, religion and NRA and all of that. So the audience looked at it in shock. But the reaction, it didn't get a big rating because nobody knew who anybody was. I was going to ask, how long did it
2: take for you guys to get popular? Uh,
5: Right after the first show, people said, what the hell was that? I said, well, that was laughing. Yeah. (laughs) And so they agreed to do some more, and we put together this collection of people. And then we would stop people in the hall. And say we just come down the hall. And what do you want me to do? Well, come down the hall and say "sock it to me." What? "Sock it to me." It's good enough. And they'd come down the hall and say, "Say you bet your bippy." What's a bippy? Good enough. And that's we would air that. Johnny Carson was a good friend. Yeah. And we would stop people on the way to the Johnny Carson show and ask them to just come by the studio and do a joke. Yeah. And that was what it was. Well, let's just
2: first of all before uh, we will come back to "sock it to me" and "you bet your bippy" and some of these great catchphrases, and I'm going to ask you where they came from. But just to, again, let's say there's somebody who maybe they weren't alive when Laughing was on. They haven't yet seen the Netflix special that was recently on. Just to give an idea of some of the crazy segments that you guys did, can you explain the origins and the popularity of a few sort of trademark segments, like let's start with the cocktail party segments?
5: cocktail party set, all about laughing was a means of doing jokes mm-hmm. and we had a setting of a cocktail party and it was a way to put stars in with other stars and see people dancing and running around and doing thing, and, uh, with music and so we would then integrate jokes into what became the cocktail party and then uh, other segments developed the same way we did a thing where we built this wall the joke wall the joke wall and these little windows would open up and people would pop out of these windows and do jokes It was called the Joke (laughs) Joke Wall. You'd look at it. You never knew what was going to happen, but you knew when one of those doors opened there was going to be somebody, either a star that you hadn't seen or just one of these regular cast members. And when Goldie Hawn stuck her head out of that window, it was magic. And so that was the Joke Wall. And then then we did uh, people that we were not too pleased with uh, we would develop a uh, segment known as the Flying Fickled Finger of Fate, which made the network nervous <laughs> because it was so close right. and which finger they always right. wanted to know. And so we did the fabulous Flying Fickle Finger of Fate, yeah. and then we gave the finger to National Rifle Association. Right. We gave the finger to everybody that, that we thought was deserving of recognition.
2: Why was there go-go dancing
5: on the show? Because uh, – First of all it was a way to put Goldie in a bikini.
2: <laughs>
6: <laughs> which,
5: and How then crazy. and then we painted words on Goldie. Yep. That was the most cherished job at NBC was <laughs> painting the graffiti on Goldie Hunt. Right. So we had to do something that would separate the spoken word right. so that there was time for the laughs. So right. we would do Joke Wall, then we would do the the uh, cocktail party, we would do the fickle finger of fate. All of those things separated the jokes and what we would do is have girls Goldie and Judy Karn and whatever, in uh, bikinis, and they would dance. And the network <laughs> got very nervous. First of all, they wanted to know what the words were. Right. That right. made them nervous. Right. Then, once we settled on what the words were, then they were concerned about where they were going to be. <laughs> so that also made them nervous. But the network spent those first years nervous all the time. All they right. were nervous about everything we did. We would do a joke of questionable content, <laughs> and if we told the writers not to laugh, it would just go right over the censor's head, and they would say... What was that? It was just a comment, you know, but it was a joke that they never would have passed. Why
2: were they nervous? Because here's the the one major distinction between what you guys did and what Saturday Night Live subsequently did. You guys were not live. You guys chose to tape and then also to still leave in bloopers.
5: Yes. So why did you make those decisions? Because uh, it was a way of getting different material done in a different way. Everything else was straight variety, and they would do stand-up, and they would do sketches and so forth. Well, our sketches ran 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. So we did that as a means of presenting as many jokes right. in as many different settings as possible. Then we put it together. The network was very nervous because they didn't understand all of the yeah, jokes. Yeah. And they said, well, you're doing jokes about subjects that uh, we wouldn't talk about. I said, well, don't talk about them. We're doing jokes about them. (laughs) So we went on. And it was the place where everybody wanted to come during the week. They would come there at night to hang out and just watch us do it. So you
2: would tape all week, but it would then air edited form on Monday nights. We would tape, yeah. And it's an hour.
5: It's an hour, but we would tape for two or three days and tape material we'd written. Then we would also tape mistakes. We would also tape improvisation. We would also tape— Why uh,
2: leave the mistakes in? if you're taping
5: because it was fun. It was see, everybody funny to else see was con- everybody else was concerned with getting the mistakes out. I right. cherished the mistakes. Right. Right. We then put it together right. and try to get it down into 60 minutes, then get it past the censors because right. the censors would sit there with a notebook full of notes and by the time they got their notes given to me about what I couldn't do, I'd already done it. Right. It sounds like I was crazy. I wasn't <laughs> crazy. I wasn't crazy. I wasn't crazy. We were having the best time of any show on television. I bet and people came by just to watch us do what we did.
2: And you mentioned it started out slow in the ratings, but the first two seasons in the end was number one and won Emmys,
5: right? Both yep, seasons. Yeah, We won a lot of Emmys, but yep. the thing was we showed up and we would tape till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. The final thing we would tape was usually the joke wall because they all went crazy and then <laughs> we could a lot of things couldn't get on the air. Right. But we would put that all together and cut it down to the time that's why we did the joke wall that way, because we needed something that was elastic. Yeah. We would tape that last, so then we could cut that together yeah. to time it out to the hour. See, this sounds like we were bad children. No, we weren't. We were a bunch of adults, yeah. tired of television the way I'd been doing it, and the way everybody had been doing it, because the shows were Andy Williams' show and all of yeah, those. Yeah. And this was a show that we never did any straight musical numbers.
2: Well, it was the first one that really was created to cater to the youth Audience
5: of the 60s, right? I mean, yes, there was yes. not, in terms of real comedy, their sensibility. It was also a show that, that played back on what was going on in society and mm-hmm. in politics and so forth. And nobody knew what to expect because nobody had ever seen a show like that before. One of the first guest stars was Cher. Yeah. And yeah. she came in to do a guest, because we were friends and we knew her. Mm-hmm. So she came in and she read through this script. I looked over and I saw that Sonny Bonner was very nervous. And he said, where's Cher's songs? And I went, oh, my God, he doesn't realize there's not going to be any songs. (laughs) So I said, Billy Barnes. I said, Billy, where's Cher's song? And Billy looked at me like, are you crazy? We spent four (laughs) weeks talking about there wasn't going to be any song. I said, you know, and he said, come with me. We go in my office. And I said, the Mountie number. He said, are you crazy? We didn't do a Mountie number. I said, write me a Mountie number. (laughs) So, So Billy Barnes went away and in 12 minutes came back with a Mountie number. And Cher... And Tim Conway did, did a Mountie <laughs> number. She loved it. That's she was hysterical. It
2: was very, in certain segments, very topical. There were things about the pill. There were things about Vietnam. There were all kinds of things that it was fun, but it,
5: you were dealing with actual issues, right? It, part of the reason, part of what we could do, we were dealing with situations. Some of the situations were not easy to deal with. Mm-hmm. We did jokes about the Vietnam War yeah, right. that were... for. Uh, Really tough to do, yeah. but we did it with music in the background, and we did it with a bunch of very attractive, funny, happy people. Right, and so they did these jokes, and by the time it went on the air, the network finally understood what we were talking about. But the audience not only understood it, but they laughed. Yes, because we were doing jokes about topical things—the same things that exist today. Yeah. See, what happened was, we did a couple of these shows. They bought it as a mistake. They bought it, it cost nothing, right. and nobody was known. There were no big stars. And so we put it on the air until they could get a real show ready. And so we put it on the air, and by about the third week, Sammy Davis came in and did a Here Come the Judge segment. Right. And the show just took off. And once the show took off, I mean, I'm arrogant now, but if you can imagine me <laughs> you know, <laughs> 50 years ago with a 50 share, forget about it. And the know.
2: 50 share, we should just remind people, this means that of all the people watching TV at that time, 50% of them were watching your That's show, right. Right? That's right. Yeah. So we had talked about Judy and Goldie and a lot of the people that were performers on the show, but we did not yet talk about the two people who were basically its namesake. And I want to ask you who they were and how they came to be the namesake, Dan Rowan
5: and Dick Martin. How did, how did that happen? Dan Rowan and Dick Martin. Rowan and Martin did a very, very funny nightclub act, and they played Vegas and whatever. In order for Timex to buy the show, I had to have a host. The show was designed without a host. Mm-hmm. So we made Rowan and Martin the hosts. And they came in, and they were wearing tuxedos. They were older than the rest of the cast. And they came in, and they kind of uh, pointed to the different things and bridged the gap between the sketches. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were charming. They were attractive. They were very, very good nightclub act. Mm -hmm. So we put them on as a host, and then that worked. Everybody had a good time. I read that the scripts for an episode
2: would sometimes run as long as 200 pages that you that you guys would require the writers to come in every week with, I think, at least a couple of cocktail party jokes. How big was the writing staff and how did their work compare to your average show in terms of what was expected of them?
5: Well, our pile of jokes was bottomless. I mean, we just kept writing jokes until we couldn't write anymore until we, we had to go on the air. Uh, it were was, you writing
2: jokes, too? Like, you're a producer, oh, yeah. but, yeah, you're getting... Oh, yeah, you're getting... Well,
5: and we had a, a shoe shine boy. He would come in with jokes. <laughs> we got jokes from every place. Right. You know? Because at that point, you understand, 1968, everything was funny to us. Nothing was funny to the rest of the country, but everything was funny to us. And uh, we were probably, along with the Smothers Brothers and yeah. a couple of other people, was much responsible for ending the Vietnam War because we pointed up things that you couldn't talk about on the news, but we talked about them and we did it funny. And the next day, all you remembered that you'd heard something about the stupidity of the Vietnam War. Well, I want to ask you, though, because you bring up the Smothers
2: Brothers and as I recall from, you know, I wasn't alive, but I've read about it. They were basically driven out of television because of their position. You
5: also- They were were canceled because. Yeah. Tommy and Dickie, I was very good friends with both of them. And they were doing jokes about the war the same as we were. Except with me, I would change the joke. I would put in another joke. And by the time it was time to air the show, I had the jokes I wanted. And we'd taken out some of the ones they didn't. The Smothers Brothers wouldn't do that. The Mm -hmm. Smothers Brothers at one point wouldn't send them the script. Mm -hmm. Well, I sent them the script just to get even with them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To the network, yeah. To the network. I would send them the script. And it wouldn't necessarily be what we were going to do. But it was enough to just buy time until we got it taped. The Smothers Brothers refused to send them the script, and they canceled them. Well, eventually, they canceled me, too, you right, know, right. because I wouldn't do what they wanted to do. And I said, uh, no, this is a comedy show. I wouldn't change it. And they said, at one point, I got a note from New York. That they sent the head censor out and said that this is after Nixon became president. Yes. And they said, as of now, there will not be any more political humor, no jokes about Vietnam, no jokes about Detroit. So I said, at that point, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. They said, you have to do that because our deal with the network was that we would use their facilities and mm-hmm. I refused to tape anything. It was yeah. not... So we taped the show and uh, aired it and then at one point, then NBC said, you can't do that anymore. And, and I think you basically,
2: money. that was maybe in the fifth season and you didn't come back for the sixth, right? Yeah, it, it was after, of our fa-
5: after the fifth year, yeah. yeah. And then I didn't come back for... The, and then they, they did one more year and that's when it kind of fell apart a little bit.
2: Why would the network feel beholden to Nixon or anyone
5: else? Why do they have well, to because, listen? To because it was a different time then. <laughs> when Richard Nixon became the president. We, which Thanks I think was, you guys, <laughs> which we, we had him say "socket" to me, right. and it made him into a nice guy. And they said that we were partially responsible for electing him. Yeah. and I've had to live with that, right, right? But Richard Nixon was evil, right? But out of that, we found great humor, right? When I, I called up after the first show aired with the "socket to me" thing in it. I called him up and I said, "Well, congratulations, Mr. President." He said, "Tell me, is Crazy Fucking George your God-given name?" And I went, "Oh God!" You because know? <laughs> <laughs> it was on. We had CFG. Drugstores, CFG bar, CFG radio, everything was CFG. And so he said, Well, it stands for Crazy Fucking George. He said this? Yeah, he said, Is Crazy Fucking George your God given name? And I said, Yes, sir, I'm afraid it is, right? <laughs> oh, my so, God. So, but then he said, Lafayette helped get him elected. But, le- okay, so let's
2: go back to the beginning of that, though, because again, you guys are going on the air in early '68. Yeah. Meaning the election is at the end of that year. And it's Nixon versus Humphrey. Yeah. Nixon is primarily known as being the stiff who lost to Kennedy, largely because he seemed stiff and humorless in the 1960 debate. Yes. So now he's running again. And how does he end up doing a cameo on the season two premiere of *Laughing*? And if you can use this opportunity also to just explain what Socket to Me even means. We grabbed
5: phrases, Socket to Me. Look that up in your Funk and Wagnall. We found different ways to say things that might have been naughty under different circumstances, but we did them so fast, nobody could ever figure it out, right. you know?
2: Well, sock It to Me was Aretha Franklin, right?
5: Yeah, that's right. She just did sock It to Me, sock It to Me. In wrong. respect. That's right. So what happened was we were riding along in the car. And my wife, Jolene, was a, the girl in the Kovacs show. She was a girl in the tub, and she did a lot of stuff with Kovacs. Okay. And she said... Uh, why don't you do Sakatumi as a runner? And I said, I can't say Sakatumi on the air. It says Because you of, believe it did it what did Eretta oh, mean? Mild, it had a mild sexual connotation. If you do Sakatumi, Sakatumi, I and you have Judy Carn in a bikini saying Sakatumi, <laughs> there was the possibility of people inferring right. right, some right, kind of right. sexual reference, right. which of course it was. Right. But we did that then by having blackouts, by sight gags. So Sakatumi, she would say Sakatumi. And then we'd splash it with water, right. which made it it wasn't a sex joke. Right, right. Well, it was a sex joke. So uh, Sakatumi came, became But
2: Nixon's a, humorless. He doesn't know what it means. Who even says, let's ask Nixon to do this? I did.
5: I said, we need something to start the second season that is exploitive, that is volatile. And So Paul Keyes was Nixon's closest friend, and he said— and a writer on your yeah. show. And I said, Paul, can you get Richard Nixon? Said, get him for me, too, right? He said, we'll try. So we go over to CBS mm-hmm. with a camera. Because Nixon's there doing Nixon's a press there conference. there doing a press conference. Yeah. And Paul Keyes said to his friend, Richard Nixon, would you just say socket to me? And Richard Nixon said, "Socket to me? And I said. No, no, no. You got to say kind of a joke. He had, of no he had no
2: idea what it was. Yeah,
5: no, I did. Was nobody did? "Sock it to me" was Aretha Franklin. It huh?
2: was, so it was not yet a hmm. slogan of, reason, of your Aretha show. Aretha Franklin
5: did it as a chance. "Sock it to me, sock it to me, sock.
2: No, but what I mean is, would the humor of having Nixon say this? Presumably, your audience already knew that as a catchphrase of laughing. Yes. So that's why it was funny, because not because of Aretha Franklin, but because for a
5: season already, you guys had already been saying no, it. No, we hadn't. We had Richard Nixon introduce. He was the something. first one to yeah, say it. The first one, because at that point it was questionable whether you could say "soccer" to me on a prime time show, but we did it, and you did it with bikinis, and you did it with laughing, and you did it with bright right. colors, and they said "soccer" to me. And Jolene, my wife, had done the Kovac show, and so she could say anything on the Kovac right. show. And nobody really took it seriously because it was not presented in a sensual way, and then uh Richard Nixon said it he didn't he didn't understand what it was, you know it took him a few takes, oh yeah, we did six takes with <laughs> Nixon trying to get him to look to look happy right He said sock it to me, no no, no. if you could just smile, sock it to me he said, he i am new at this comedy business, and he held up three fingers right and so what is he, the three fingers what is well, you, you know he said take two and held up three oh, fingers <laughs> and uh uh But But the reason it was funny for a viewer
2: to hear Richard Nixon say it to me is because at that very time, very recently is when Aretha Franklin had done the song. Yes, it was. It wasn't because it was already a reference of year. No, no,
5: no. It was Aretha Franklin was in her record. Yes. But you see, what happened was we would do that. No president had ever appeared on a variety show before, particularly Nixon, you know, (laughs) who had starch in his shirts. and, And so he did it. But it was in an environment of fun and bikinis and laughter. So once it went on the air, then it was acceptable. And it made him cool. Yeah, it made him him appear to be in the mainstream of American. uh, Did Humphrey want equal time? We tried. We chased Humphrey all over the country trying to get it. he said eventually that not doing the show may have cost him the election. I've had to live with it. Yeah,
2: right. (laughs) Just let me ask you about a couple of these other catchphrases, which everybody still remembers who saw it at the time. You mentioned Sammy Davis Jr. came in and said, "Here come the judge." Yeah. What? Where did that come from? And where did that?
5: That came from Pigmeat Markham. I grew up in St. Louis, and Pigmeat Markham was there with thing called the Chitlin' Circuit, and uh, uh, it was the vaudeville. uh, Had the black people had to put on black makeup to get out, but you had to have black people you couldn't have black people on television you could have white people in blackface and that was a the whole thing going on in the middle in the middle west you know and Sakatumi was uh, part of that or and, Here Come the Judge and Here Come the Judge yeah. was another thing and yeah. in Pigmead Markham it was a connection of a way to do joke, right? And then say, here come the judge. And then we'd do a topper and then another joke and another joke. What we did with laughing was to try to get as many jokes on as close together and as fast as possible. And then to make them have, we would put a big laugh after a straight line and the network would say, What was wrong? What was, well, what did you say? What did you say? And by then, we'd done three other things that we were not supposed to say. We were like a bunch of children when just having a good time. You would, when you say you would put a big laugh, there wasn't a live audience for you. Yes, there was. Or there, there was? was an audience of like maybe 300 people, 400 people. For everything you did, even and though you. We you're... always had
2: some audience there. Okay. And so, in terms of the laughs that the audience would hear on TV, they were all organic, or would you. Boost them a little there bit. Were, there,
5: were, there was always an audience. Yeah. So you had the audience that was there. Mm-hmm. But that sometimes would be 200 people. Sometimes right. it would be 25 right, people. Right. So we would then put that all together and right. uh, straighten so it sounded normal. Yeah. You know? Part of our problem yeah. on laughing was shortening the laughs yes. so we could get more jokes yes. in. Because yes. by equal, by, by actual measurement, there yeah. were hundreds of jokes in on every show. And some of them were just written jokes, some of them were graffitis, some of them were yeah. flashcasters underneath the screen. Do you
2: remember what in the history of—the reason I'm going to ask this question, when we were doing the—we had Carol Burnett and we had Bob Mackie, we were talking about the Carol Burnett show. And they said in the history of their show, the thing that got the longest laugh was, I think, when Carol came out with the—exactly, the Gone with the Wind dress— you know, the curtain rod. What was the thing on Laugh-In in the history of laugh that got the longest laugh?
5: Oh, God, I can't, I can't begin to guess. It would have been something with Goldie yeah. or something with Artie Johnson right. or something with Judy. Joanne Worley got huge laughs. Ruth Buzzy, when Ruth Buzzy came out as Gladys. Mm-hmm. We we just did this anniversary show, right? Yeah, of course. And so that was, again, the problem of how do you shorten right. the laughs to get more jokes in? So I can't begin to tell you which joke got the most reaction. Well, it seems
2: like maybe one of the recurring sketches featuring somebody who didn't join until your third season, Lily Tomlin, right?
5: Yeah. Well, Lily Lily came in with characters, and those characters were gold. I'd seen her in New York in a show, and she was doing a barefoot tap dance with the taps taped to the bottom (laughs) of her feet. And I fell in love with her, but I could never find her. And finally, uh, I saw another thing she was doing with Lucille, who was a rubber freak, and she <laughs> ate rubber. And they, they found out that uh, one day they discovered her was eating rubber. And she, Her husband came home and found her with a typewriter eraser sticking out of her <laughs> teeth. And so we, so we did a thing about Lucille, the rubber freak. And then Lily came in, and she said, well, which character do you want? I said, I want to do all of them. Yeah. And we could do it because we were taping right. bits and pieces and bits and pieces. So we could do in one show, Lily would do eight or ten different characters. And the
2: ones that resonated the most, probably Ernestine, the telephone operator. Well, Ernestine
5: Ernestine was, Ernestine was a threat to the to the establishment. We would uh, have Ernestine call up anybody we were not happy with. And she called Nixon. She called General out, Motors. Oh, General yeah. Motors. <laughs> she called uh, the Bell Telephone Company. Right, right. Lily Thomas was the sweetest woman in the world. She has a wicked sense of humor, right. and she did appreciate the fact that she was attacking huge, huge companies yeah. and huge people, and uh, threatening to take their phone away. You know, as your instrument, you know. And and Ernie would say, <laughs> "We'll take your instrument away." And then the audience, of people would come in just to see Lily tape. They would right. come in to see uh, Lily and Ruth, yeah. Ruth Buzzy and Artie yeah. Johnson.
2: I guess so, the other maybe most iconic of Lily's characters would have been Edith Ann. Who, just to remind people. A little kid, essentially, you would create this oversized chair so Lily yes, could sit yes. it in and look like a little kid.
5: We and, built that chair for Lily. Yes. And yeah. Edith Ann was a six-year-old, and she said, I don't have to say nothing if I don't want to. <laughs> and then she says, uh, I'm going to have a baby. That that shook everybody right, up. Right, right. And she explained how you get a baby, you know. <laughs> and uh, that that rang around through the halls. Right, right, right. Quick aside, what was Soul? Soul was actually, I just read a thing about the Wayans. ins Soul was uh, a laugh-in done with all black people, pretty much You so.
2: made this as a pilot, right? Yes,
5: we did. We made it as a pilot and put it on the air. After the first season of laugh yeah, yeah. So it was like a black version of laugh It was a black version of laugh but we taped it and ran it for a black audience. The yeah. black audience laughed and wouldn't leave the theater. They laughed so hard. But then the network, we put it on the air, mm-hmm. and it was a big hit. But the network didn't can, didn't air it as a series and canceled because they were afraid they could never cancel the show. So what I did is I sent that tape to Kenan and Wayans. Mm-hmm. And I said, here, try this. And they did. They did the uh, the Fly Girls became the girls yeah, that we had on yeah, lab. Yeah. And so uh, I've always been kind of proud for having had a major role in developing a show that I always wish I had gotten. Yeah. But I couldn't I couldn't get it on. I had, you couldn't have a white And producer. you had,
2: though, this is pre- Norman Lear, Red Fox, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and Nipsey Russell, and really talented people there. That's one of the kind of lost—who knows what that could have been. Well, it,
5: it could have been what it was. It yeah. could have been—but the, but the show worked because the weigh-ins were working. They had a right. family relationship and so forth, right. and it needed, to be, it needed to be a black producer. A white producer could not right. have done right. that show. So as laugh meanwhile, progresses through season
2: one, season two, season three, when Lily joins, all of this, as it became bigger and bigger, forget about only Nixon. You had all these great guest appearances,
5: and I wonder which to you were the most memorable. Dr. Martin Luther King, I think, was one of them, and and, uh, the one that was uh, probably the most—we did Bill William Buckley, Mm -hmm. and he was an arch-conservative— So when we called him to do the show, he said, "Not only do I refuse to appear, I resent having been asked." <laughs> and so we aired that. <laughs> you had you uh, then got him to say that, or you recorded we got him to him? say that, right? And we got him to. He said it on the air.
2: But I, how, if he actually resented being asked and all of that, if he refused, how did you then get him? Because to Because
5: I taped him telling me he wouldn't do the show. So you okay? So you actually just
2: recorded his rejection. Yes,
5: yes. and so, so then what? he said. Then he yeah. said. I said William Buckley agreed to do the show on the condition that we would fly him to Burbank in a plane with two right wings. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Okay, that got him." So, so he, he came out to, to come. Came out and then my favorite thing yeah. was I had Lily Tomlin interview William Buckley. Yeah. And it was hysterical because he was terrified of her, you know, because right. she did a double talker that just in the double talk, she would get important things said, but you didn't really recognize them as having been right. as outrageous as they were. But Buckley, Buckley and Gore Vidal, they all loved Lily Tomlin. You also were rejected and yet still included John Wayne, right? Oh, yeah. John Wayne said, I'm not going to do that show. We would put that on the air.
2: So
6: just We'd stop again, him though- in the
5: hall. We'd stop him in the hall. Hey Duke, will you do laughing? I'm not gonna do that show, and we put that on the air. But when, when
2: you in this case, when you say you put it on the air, you then, even though he
5: says I'm not gonna do that show, we taped it. You taped him saying that I'm not gonna do the show. We put that in the show. It was it was wonderful. Yeah. you understand? This was a free form, right? Just crazy happening. It was so like he wasn't ha- pissed that you put. Him saying
2: I'm not going to do well, that no, show Well, no, so when he
5: found out the amount of press he got, the amount of attention he got yeah, for saying he was not going to do that show was very gratifying. So then he wound up doing all of the shows. Right, you had him uh, just to, you had him next to Tiny Tim. Yeah, well that was a that was a trip. Tiny Tim and, and Duke Wayne was <laughs> something. To you behold. had him in a bunny suit. Yes, he we resented the bunny suit too. <laughs> He said, I'm not going to do that show. The last right. time I did the show, they put me in a bunny suit.
2: That's a great, you got the voice right down. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, and Edward G. Robinson, I mean, you guys had incredible,
5: we people. Had incredible people. We had incredible uh, people. We had the Farkle family on, <laughs> and, and uh, we had the Farkels, right? And uh, it was a, an attempt to get as close to naughty words as we could without anybody right. saying it, right? So we named the Farkles Fanny Farkle and Betty <laughs> and Bob Farkle and Marty and Smarty Farkle. Right. And uh, so we put the Farkle family on, and they all looked they all looked like Dick Martin. Right. And uh, Dick Martin had red hair, and they all had red hair. So they we're obviously illegitimate right, children right. sired by Dick Martin. <laughs> and uh, so uh, they said, well, you got to name We had Greer Garson on the show. Right. And she said, "What are their names?" I said, I, "I don't know. I've never named." So she named the 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 Farkle she family. She came
2: up with the Farkle name. She
5: came up with the names Artie and Smarty Farkle, oh, all the first Simon, names. Yes. Simon and Gar Farkle, and <laughs> so the Farkle family became became a household. You know, one of the
2: questions I I have listening to you talk about all the things that you had to do to sort of circumvent the censors. Yes, yes. If you could have made the show without any censors. Would the show have actually been better, or was it better because
5: you had to— Better, It was better because of the obstacles. It yeah. was better because of what we were not allowed to say, because there was always the threat. I mean, we the F word terrified the network. Right. So we had names like Krantz, We had the Farkles <laughs> and the, the Fickle Finger of Fate, and look that up in your Funkin' Wagnall. Right. So the network was Funk always—
2: Funkin' con- the one that I remember, because that really right.
5: sounds the like— The network was always concerned yeah. with what—and we would say it with a long F. Look that up in your— Funk and waggle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the network was always concerned. Why do you say it like that? I said, that's the way they pronounce their name. <laughs> and so, see, it, it sounds like children, and it was children. Yeah. It was children having a great time confusing and abusing their, their parents. And yes. that's where we were. The, the, the network was the parents, and we were the children. Do you know what the demographics were of your audience? Were the viewers primarily when you got young that people? Big, when you got that big an audience, yeah. there were no demographics. Yeah. It was everybody. 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 I mean, it was like the biggest audience of all time at that time, and uh, so there was no way to analyze who the right. people were because they were everybody. The children saw one show with the bright colors and the balloons right. and the color, and then the uh, young people saw another show with dancing, or whatever. And then it came the ones that got turned on by Goldie and right. Lily and Ruth and uh, Joanne, and then then it got into the heavyweight stuff, right. you know, with Buckley, the news of the past, yeah. present, and the future. Right. But you put all of that together, somebody was offended by everything, <laughs> and everybody was offended by, by something, something right, yeah. right what happened is we did it with we did it with bright music, we did it with young people yeah. there was no anger there was no there was no point of view there was no we were not trying to convince you of any political philosophy we were just trying to reflect in a humorous way on all political philosophies mm. I mean it was not easy for you know, William Buckley to get on a variety show at that right. point. <laughs> so
2: as the show became bigger and bigger, I imagine that some people's egos did as well. And I've read about a few situations where, you know, for instance, Dick Martin got jealous of Goldie or things like that. What? How did you, as the producer, who's sort of the ringmaster, navigate things like that?
5: Well, it was difficult to get upset with Goldie about anything because she was just so adorable, you know, but... Dick was only concerned with the fact that Goldie was getting all the press and all of the interviews and all of the visibility. And, uh, he and by bought, the way,
2: left to won an Oscar and then
5: right. came I back. I her out of the show to go do the Oscars. Yeah, and, Flower, yeah. But that bothered Dick Martin yeah. that they were getting more attention. She was getting more attention than they were. And so uh, there was a famous time when one time they were, they were upset that Goldie gotten so much attention. So Dick didn't come in. He was going to, I'll show him, right? So what I did, I went across the hall, and I got Johnny Carson to read <laughs> Dick Martin's cards. And so, hi, Dan. Hi, Dick. And he said, that's not Dick Martin. That's Johnny Carson. Right, <laughs> right. So that was funny. That's correct. Right. So then Dan got upset because I'd done that with Dick. So he wouldn't come in. <laughs> so then I did Goldie and Lily. Right. They did Rowan and Martin's cards. Right. And nobody ever thought anything about that it. Was. It was just, hi, Dan. Hi, Dick. It's just part of the craziness <laughs> of it all. What we had then doesn't exist today yeah. because we were responsible for a lot of the new rules they have. And then they went too far and removed all rules. Mm-hmm. So now you can say anything and 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 that's not what we wanted to do. You think we survived lost. because there were rules against much right. of what we were doing. Right, right. And by breaking those rules, we survived and became an experience. The reason that your time with Laughing came to an end,
2: I've I've heard different accounts. One of them we've talked about already that you started to get this political pressure and we're not happy with that. You're not willing to work under those circumstances. Another thing I had read was that you ended up selling your interest in the show to Rowan and Martin because there had been bickering between you guys. What, from your perspective, was the reason that after the fifth season, before the sixth and final season, which, is not, which was sort of like a new cast and not well regarded, why did you get out of
5: there? Laugh there was an experience, and it was a funny experience, and it was the high point of my life, and I was having a good time. And everybody that was on the show, or saw the show, had a good time, mm-hmm. and eventually, when the problems began to outweigh the joy, I said, "This isn't this isn't work. I'd rather rather than to see it disintegrate, I'd rather just end it. And we did. We ended it in one word, and then the net Netflix show that we're airing now.
2: Well, but you end it. It went on for a year without yes, you.
5: Yes, but I said, but but my agreement was that it would end the end of that next year. Ah, okay, okay. And so, you then. We, we ended it on an upbeat note, yes. and they did one more year, which never re-ran anywhere. Because Be- that wasn't really you, and that wasn't really good. Well, and all, also because when we were doing the show, while it was political and biting and hard-hitting political jokes, it was never a point of view. It was never our full political philosophy. It was everybody's political right. philosophy, and we have our humor on both sides. Once it began to become a platform, then it was no longer fun. Well, that final sixth season that you
2: were not really involved with, the guy who had gotten you Nixon in the second season, what's his name again? Bulkies Yeah. Yeah. The, he's the, He was a conservative guy. Very conservative. And, I mean, what was his story? Because my understanding is, how did, I mean, how did he come to be involved with the show in the first place? And then in the sixth season, this show, which had really been so counterculture, was suddenly a yes. conservative platform because of him, right?
5: Yeah. Well, he came in as a writer and uh, he was a good writer, but he was a, everything he wrote was pretty much leaning to the right mm-hmm. so because of the format of laughing, we didn't have to air it. We mm-hmm. aired what was in the middle right And uh, Paul was a good writer and a very close friend of Richard Nixon and Nixon getting that third year that second year off the ground yeah played Talking a major role in yeah. our in our publicity yes. in our but what happened is once you became aware of intent, mm-hmm. then we lost the right to do it. Mm-hmm. We could say anything about anybody so long as you were not aware that we were convincing you of one political philosophy or another. We did jokes about everybody, about four and uh, everything. Yeah. And that's what made it work because nobody was ever—people were offended equally. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> equal opportunity offense. Equal opportunity of uh, offender. Yeah. That's how come it survived because— there was something in there to offend everyone. Right. And as a result, you were aware that uh, we were, had no intent, and that's how we got by with everything. And then when you left and Paul Keyes became the, the
2: principal voice, they had something called Balanced Viewpoint. What was yeah, that?
5: They did a thing where they said they would present a news, news, news item, yeah. and they would say, here's the news item, and here's what the actual news was. And it was—it uh, was. This like, was the beginning of arguing that there was fake news. That's right. It was the beginning of arguing. Now, it was obvious when you right. saw it. You went, "Wait a minute!" Well, that's not what we did. We mm-hmm. we do we would do a news item and let you decide if it was fake. And we do the news item, and you put a rim shot and laughs under it. You realize that was a fake item. Right. But it became a platform for the right, which it never had been. It was not a platform for anybody. We right. did jokes about and for and with everybody. Right. And so when that began to fade, that's when I said I'm out of here.
2: Right. So, Laughing ends seventy three. Yeah. You were gone by seventy two. Yeah. Life after Laughing was there a concern like how do you follow something that's this big, or were you just already
5: you had other ideas? Well, I you... was. I was into other things, you know, because at that age I didn't sleep a lot and I wanted to try everything. And so the next thing I did try mm-hmm. was real people, and we did a show with and about real people who we found were funny, and uh, they still are. It was sort of the
2: beginning of reality TV.
5: It was the beginning of yeah. reality
2: TV. Aired every Wednesday. It was and a huge hit. Big, big hit. And I guess things like everything from America's Funniest Home Videos yes. to you know The Bachelor or whatever probably owe a debt Funniest to that. America's Funniest
5: Home Videos and... Uh, Well, all in the family was Norman Lear. Yes. And he's often said that part of the reason that they could do all in the family because of the barriers that we had knocked down, we made it okay to talk about everything Mm -hmm. because we did it without intent. You were not aware of intent. Right. The big thing with laughing was to never be aware of intent. You were not aware of my political. Obviously, the right wing thought I was a communist and thought I was the right, you know, (laughs) whatever, for the violent overthrow of everything. Right. But we did jokes on both sides. Right. Dr. Billy Graham. Right was on the show, and he said, laughing, he said, the, the family who watches laughing together really needs to pray together. Well, I found that to be a <laughs> yeah, wonderful right. observation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but you can bet that Dr. <laughs> would not appear on Smothers Brothers or on any other variety. show. Right, right. Let me just prompt
2: you about a few of these other shows that you've done over the years, just your first thoughts or whatever about that. I think for CBS... At a time when I assume people, you know, no pe- people didn't really know the the dark side of this guy. You did the Bill Cosby show. What what made him funny,
5: and what was it like working with him? He was funny. He was yeah. a character. He was a he was a brilliant comedian. Yeah. Bill Cosby was not taken off the air because he wasn't funny. Right. He was taken off the air because he was horny. Right. Yeah, and twisted, yeah. Well, and twisted, you know, and uh, that was kind of unfortunate because Bill remains today, having been one of our funniest comics. He had an enormous influence on. Yeah, he was America's favorite father. Were you totally blindsided when it all fell apart for him, or, or no, did you? No, I, there's a picture of me on the wall, mm-hmm. telling Cosby I wasn't going to do the show anymore because we had heard what was happening. Back in this is like
2: the yeah. 70s. You I knew did that his he
5: was. And I have a picture on the wall of me refusing to do another show because I said uh, he's going to get in trouble, and he did.
2: In the 70s, you you yeah, knew
5: I that mean, he was well, up we to knew, We knew, You know, I mean, it was, it was pretty obvious. Like, how would you know? Well, you have to be blind not to know. There were girls going in and out of that dressing room. But
2: that's consensual. What he
5: has been accused well, of yeah, was— but see, consensual is different today. Uh-huh. I mean, consensual—was uh, uh, the drugs consensual? No. It was just that was there was Bill and Bill. See, it's, well, today you have you have politicians that are now up on twelve charges yeah. for having been horny and having uh, drugged girls and having convinced teenagers to have sex. So sex now has become almost a dirty word. You know, it's unfortunate they've taken a lot of the fun out of a, out of a female male female relationships. You know. Well, as I mean, long as got, uh-huh. it's consensual and the people are over over the legal age, I guess. But yeah, I that... mean, they did, we did jokes today. A guy couldn't get laid in a in a female prison with a fistful of pardons. And well, it just doesn't work anymore, you know. So you have got to try a different lifestyle.
2: You had a couple of variations of laughing. What was the
5: Great American Laugh Off? That was pretty much the same kind of philosophy of, of uh, young people doing doing jokes and. Uh, woven together without all of the commercial waiting for commercials and, and in, long introductions and all of that. It was all the time you needed to do the jokes. That's what it was. And it, it was again for NBC and I guess
2: the big find from that which you had made this discovery I think at comedy clubs in San Francisco was Robin, Robin Williams. Sure, sure, so sure. How did, where did you? Where did I you first? I saw Robin
5: Williams uh, on the street in San Francisco. And he was barefoot and wearing coveralls and a straw hat and a scarf around his neck. And he had the microphone out over the audience. And he says, I'm fishing for assholes. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I said, I'd never seen anything like that. So I fell in love with with Robin. And I said, Robin, if you'll come into the office, I said, I want you clean shaven with shoes, (laughs) right? And I want you to do a series and so he, he came in the next week, and he was clean, and he had a suit coat on and everything, and he came in and he started. It was one of the most brilliant performers I had ever seen. But he was so strange that television had passed him by. Mm-hmm. They, were, they had no way to contain Robin Williams because you never knew where he was going. Mm-hmm. It was great for me because I never knew where I was going right, either. Right. So, uh, we, so you really, we, though, were the one that introduced him to
2: a national audience.
5: Yes, and uh, we remained friends
2: for the rest of his life. Just again, you know, in the same way, I was wondering if you ever saw any warning signs about Cosby. Did you ever see any warning signs about Robin in the sense of being
5: that he could get that low? Robin, Robin didn't get low. Robin was his own sig alert. Mm -hmm. I mean, Robin, you never knew whether Robin was serious or not. If Robin was low, you never knew it Mm -hmm. because low was... Working, too. Robin right. was funny, right. and he was the most literate. He was a graduate of uh, Juilliard School. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, they, they told him not to come back for his senior year because they said there was nothing more they could teach him because <laughs> he was intimidating the rest of the students. Right. <laughs> I fell in love with Robin. Yeah. I just loved him. And he, he became a very good friend. and I was, I was sad. I had no idea he was that unhappy.
2: Yeah. Another shorter-lived spinoff in a way of,
5: of laughing was called
2: Turn On. This was for well, not nah, NBC. No,
5: no, 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 Let's go. Do, do I, am I talking about any of your mistakes? <laughs> right. turn, on, turn On may have been one of my proudest moments. My deal with Turn On was the network wanted to do a show, so I said I could do one show and I would this do whatever is I want. ABC now because you've yeah. been
2: with NBC. ABC wants a piece of you now, right?
5: Mm-hmm. There were all kinds of devices for instance there was the thing called a moo synthesizer which we now know as synthesized music but at that point it was just sound effects mm-hmm. and there was editing techniques that had not been grown up before and so we would cut together little bits and pieces we had signs in the background we had all kinds of visual devices that were integrated into this this show and uh, my deal with network with the network was we could do anything we wanted to do well we came on the air with Turn On, and the guy in Cleveland had wanted them to keep uh, uh, the, keep another show on that had gone off. I forget what it was, but it was a show that he liked and that nobody else did. <laughs> and so he, when he found out we were coming on the air with Turn On, he called all of the stations and told them all to say that they couldn't air the show. So nobody ever saw the show. The the stations called each other and said, "We can't do this. We can't do that. We can't." So when we went on the air, we were canceled all across the country, one station at a time. So by the time we got to California, we'd been canceled. But it was uh, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, all the things that we didn't turn on are now commonplace. So you Mo-
2: only one episode ever really saw the light episode, of day. Only one episode,
5: yeah. And they, in order to get paid at all, I had to uh, commit to never airing the show anywhere because they knew if it ever got out. It was going to be a hit. What happened was so we— So all these years later, though, can you not no, make it available no, still? No. Because of ABC? Yeah. I mean, because I have a, I had a firm contract. you got to read a contract yeah. saying that I would never—that might my payoff, I committed to never airing the show. So you uh, never you saw it. You would think time. that
2: ABC would realize they could make a few bucks and put out a DVD or something, like, just for— It's a
5: different administration. It's a different time, yeah. and, and we were— No, I mean,
2: yeah, of course, now I'm saying if they put out the TV, but wow. So how did tribute, how did variety tribute shows sort of become a thing of yours where you were doing not only, you were talking about early, I mean, you were doing Goldie and Liza together. You did Sammy Davis Jr. 60th anniversary celebration, eight Danny Thomas specials, Frank Sinatra's 80th birthday. So many of these different where it's like you come in and do a one-off thing and I guess is it just about talent relationships
5: again? Well, the people you mentioned were all friends of mine, and were most of them were people who I'd worked with before. But at that point, Variety was a question of putting on somebody, and they would do a, a solo, then they would do a duet, then they'd do a monologue, then they'd do a sketch. Variety was pretty much all in the same shape. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it was to welcome them and to, to focus on their accomplishments, I mean... Frank Sinatra would he raise more money for charity than anybody in the world, mm-hmm. and there was a had to be a way of telling it without it coming out as saccharine kind of you know wishy washy so we did uh, uh his seventy fifth birthday and then sammy when sammy Sammy was a friend of mine from a time when from when he from first way back, yeah. yeah and uh so we did that it was I made a commitment to the network to do a Sammy Davis special, yeah. And in the meantime, we found out he had cancer. Right, right, right. And so it went from a, an hour show to two hours to three hours. Right. And we then got all these friends. Everybody in the world wanted to do the Sammy Davis show, and that's right. what became that seventy-fifth birthday. And it was I'm as proud of that as anything I've ever done, including the stuff I did with Sinatra. I was proud of.
2: Right. And you ended up giving Sinatra's eulogy, even right.
5: Yes. Yeah. That was terrifying. Yeah. Barbara Sinatra said, would I do a eulogy? I said, Barbara, it's Frank, I don't, you know, you've got people. She said, do the eulogy. So I said, okay. So I go up to do the eulogy, and everybody in the world is there. Cardinal Spellman was there, and and he introduced me, which terrified me, because, uh, you know, here I am in this church of famous people doing a eulogy, which is not my long suit, doing religious speeches. So I said I would. So... I look out and I saw the cardinal Spellman is introducing me and I said uh, this was a new experience for me I said but thank you very much and I could, couldn't find the words so I said your honor and so my wife just went almost fainted I just called a cardinal by the day. I said then to make it worse explained I'd talked to a lot more judges than cardinals right <laughs> and uh but that that became yeah. Uh, a funny eulogy about yep. Frank at that moment was, uh,
2: and really, like we said earlier, you you met him on your first week funny, at MCA, but we wound up friends forever. Friends for we went ever.
5: to we went to went to Hawaii together. We went went all over the world together, and I I had more fun with him. He was an adventure. I mean, if it hadn't been for Frank, I would still I had body parts that are still under warranty. <laughs> he kept me up all night every night, you know, in, in every country around the world. Right
2: making our way to the present, you also fought very hard for years to get the American Comedy Awards on the air. Finally, ABC put it on in 1987. Why, I mean, we have awards for everything. Why did we take that long to get awards for comedy?
5: I guess my own inability to to sell. I mean, it was, see, the comics have always been, oh, and them, you know? Nobody'd really spent that much time, focused that much, on the on the contribution of the comedians, I mean, right. we had Danny Thomas and Danny Kay and so forth. But as far as the Robin Williams, for instance, how would you give him an award then, right? Right. So it was uh, an area of show business that we kind of overlooked as far as its importance. More money is raised by comics than any other cause. So we decided to focus on on the contribution yeah. of the comedian. Now we didn't realize that that was, was Trump was coming up.
2: God, yeah. Well. <laughs> 2019, this year that we're in right now, you had what must be a weird experience to have essentially a reunion with all the people from all those years ago, from Laughing half century ago, along with all the hot new, up and coming talent from comedy on this Netflix special called Still Laughing. What was it was taped at the Dolby Theater yeah. in Hollywood, the, the great venue for the Oscars and everything, and.
5: I imagine it must have been a pretty overwhelming night for you. What it, was it? It was a bit intimidating because, yeah. Laughing, when we did the show, we did it in front of an audience of maybe somewhere from 20 people to 200 right. people, but we never did it to 3,000 people. Right. So it was a bit intimidating to have that large an audience watching and reacting to a show that had basically been made up of brief pieces. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't totally pleased with the results, but uh, it, it worked. You what know? was the.
2: Best part of it,
5: just getting the group back together. I mean, everybody but Goldie, I think, was pretty much. Well, Goldie couldn't be there, but uh, Lily was there, and they—they yeah. they all were there. And then, of course, then recently Artie died. But all of, most of the performers that had been on Laughing are dead, you know. Yeah. But it was—it fu- was fun just to, to take another look at it, you know, yeah. because uh, it still uh, it was...
2: holds up, right? The
6: humor oh, yeah. is still. Oh,
5: well, where do you see that show? It's yeah, no, a... oh, I've seen but it. Part of my part of my legacy will be that I had. Some of the most fortunate mistakes ever made. (laughs) It played a large part in my career and in my success. It was fun to see them, but the thing was, out of 150 hours of uh, what was laughing, we took 90 minutes, so you see how much more there was there. Right, right. But it was still still a delightful experience. It's delightful to have a room full of people all saying they like you.
2: Absolutely. Which
5: was a new experience for me because I've had rooms full of people saying they didn't like me. And you facilitated
2: evenings where it was all about somebody else, whether it's Sinatra or Sammy Davis or whoever. The
5: whole idea was about somebody else. Right. So now here you go. It was your turn. So that was a jolt.
2: Last two or three minutes, I just want to ask you some big picture, just your your thoughts about— some things that only you could really give a authoritative answer on. What happened to the variety show?
5: Well, it became like with everything else, too much. You know, I mean, they all became the same show. They all uh, uh, would do come out, sing an opening song, do a monologue, introduce a guest star, then do a duet, and what. So it all became the same, and there was nothing really new in the variety show until until that then. and then. Saturday Night Live came, mm-hmm. but Saturday Night Live, which is wonderful, but they do ten fifteen minute acts, and that's I don't think the attention span of the American people <laughs> want to hear a fifteen minute act so you you think the main distinction there is that because
2: you guys were so like shot out of a gun, yes. they are more skits
5: yes and 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 the 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 attention span of the American people has shrunk yeah. since because Definitely. commercials now when we did when we did Dinah. And Judy Garland, the commercials were two minutes. Now they're to 15 seconds, Mm -hmm. you know, and so our attention span has shrunk. Humor's also gotten a lot, TV humor, TV comedy has also gotten a lot more political, not saying... Strangely enough, no, it has not gotten more political. It's gotten more stupid. Most the thing is, there's so much to talk about now. Yeah, it's the richest time in our in our history. And if there's a way for our country to set sa- to survive, yeah. where we are now, it will be from the humorists. It will be from Bill Maher. It will be from you know these people who can go out on stage and tell the emperor he's naked. I mean, you, and we have to f- unleash the comics on the politicians. But see, when you when you use language or subject matter. It turns people off. You don't want to turn them off. You want to turn them on. You want to b- excite them. You want to bring in things that make them uh, excited and, and uh, uh, pleased. And and if they're offended, they're offended equally, and they're offended with a purpose. So I'm concerned about the need for more humor, not less. And Rupert Murdoch tried to get you to do a political thing, right? Oh, yeah, thing, I had right? a meeting. I, I had a meeting with Mr. Murdoch, and uh, I, I didn't know why they wanted me to meet with him. So I said, well, how do you do, Mr. Murdoch? He said... George, he said, "I know your work," and he said, uh, "I would like to do a new laugh-in, new comedy show." And he said, uh, "Of course, you know we'd have to change the content of the show uh, from what it was to what it could be." And I said, "Mr. Murdoch," I said, "Look at your watch." He said, "Why?" I said, "Look at your watch." And He said, well, I said, "You've just had the shortest meeting of your life." Because <laughs> <laughs> he was wanting you to have what a little bit he of a me conservative laugh-in. Why their way? You know. Uh, yeah because Fox you know when you realize that yeah. Sean Hannity is no longer funny it's now it's now dangerous because right. he's preaching that one note to a whole generation it's like uh, Father Coughlin huh it's Father Coughlin or these different yeah. uh you know So we've got to be very dangerous very very careful with the uh, Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and uh, yep. you know those those people are dangerous because not that they're saying anything that important, but they're saying it over and over and over and over again right. in all day parts. And uh, so somebody's got to stand up and tell the emperor he's naked. You could have done
2: theater. You could have done more with movies. Why was TV the medium that you most wanted to work in?
5: Because of its immediacy. I mean, I have a, I have a minimal attention span, as you may be able to <laughs> determine from my answers. I bore, I even bore myself. <laughs> and the idea of doing something where you do 6 8 months to do one movie yeah. or something uh, is tough for me i don't right. have that much attention span so i'm happy doing television television goes into the home grabs you gets your attention you can say anything you can say anything on both sides that's important that we keep the arena and so we can continue to say to say things on both sides and yeah. humor humor's the great panacea yeah you can say anything to the queen if you know when to laugh you right, know? Right, right the last two no diplomatic answer here i want
2: the if we gave you truth serum i want what what you would say welcome <laughs> 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 who is the funniest person you ever worked with
5: probably wallet robin robin williams yeah that was just it was just pure genius you know and uh uh, his his education contributed to it and his attention span and his the vocabulary and it, he'd read the books and magazines and he he knew how to, he was defensive everything about robin was totally educated and and out there so robin robin would be far and away probably the and I and I've worked with everybody uh, yeah. from Danny Thomas to you know to George Carlin certainly is funny all of those people are funny but robin williams alone would be the single and this is
2: important for people listening
5: should know that it's important to hear this from you because I think
2: I'm going to just mention a bunch of the big names and of comedy throughout your lifetime and Uh-oh. just tell me if you ever I think many of them you had something to do with at one point or another right so I just get a zoom right through Bob Hope
5: I wonder there's a picture of him up there me making Bob Hope laugh which I cherish Bob Hope Bob Hope is a machine he's done a great deal He's he's done a lot for our servicemen and for our country and he's a He's a, a treasure. Jack Benny. A oh, delightful man. A delightful man. Vulnerable, funny, delight, kind, gentle. He never did a mean joke in his life. I love Jack Benny. Milton Berle. Milton Berle was a joke. Jo- Milton Berle had more to do with the comedy of this country than people realize. He was responsible for a lot of innovations, and, and uh, I love Milton. Milton was an experience. Not easy to deal with, but an experience. Jackie Gleason. Gleason. <laughs> I did my first show with Jackie Gleason, and he walks in and takes a hold of this script, and he says, This is crap, and threw the script up in the air. And uh, the writers all went, Oh my God, what's happening? So he, he said, so he leaves, and I said, Whoa. So I pick up the script, and it was on the floor. We, I'd given him a loose script with no and the real script was on the table. So I said, <laughs> Here, oh boy, we just made it. I said, I don't know why, but I gave him the wrong script. Right. So, anyhow, you he threw it away we came back a day and a half later with the new script he said now this is more like it <laughs> gleason was a trip though gleason was uh gleason was like a baptism under fire red skeleton i think you did his last red show. was delightful yeah. red was delight. he was he was also he was a bit of a fraud you know why well i mean uh, uh those the dress rehearsals for the red skeleton show were totally obscene they were dirty really yeah oh yeah oh yeah and uh uh, so nobody ever saw them. He fired the whole staff one week because they taped the rehearsal. <laughs> and uh, it was, they said, oh, my God, this is Red Skelton. <laughs> God bless. And uh, uh, he was funny, but he was not the, the epitome of taste and culture and religion. Moms
2: Mabley, I know that's
5: someone you loved. I loved Moms. Loved, loved moms, right?
2: Yeah. I read one thing that you were the only, I guess, was it white producer that was willing to go to the Apollo? Or where was yeah, it? Well, there
5: was a long, 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 long time ago. And... Uh, so I would go down to the Apollo regularly, and uh, uh, that's where we found Nipsey and, and Flip Wilson, all these people. Because at that point, see, black performers did not work the main rooms of uh, Vegas and so forth. And they were not; they couldn't even come in and see the shows. So we were going back way back, but uh, moms, moms, was uh, moms was a trip. Woody Allen. Woody Allen was a genius. I always wondered what else he could have done. You know, he he could have done much more. But Woody, Woody was funny.
2: Lenny Bruce. Did you ever
5: see Lenny Bruce?
2: Never. I mean, I, I'm aware of Lenny Bruce, of
5: course. Lenny, Lenny Bruce was an adventure. Lenny Bruce, but Lenny Bruce did not get fired. Did not get drummed out of the business for his jokes about politics. It was for religion. Mm-hmm. When he started doing jokes about the church, the church said, "No, I don't think so." Mm-hmm. And so that's when they dropped the, the hammer on Lenny Bruce. But Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce was funnier than we ever realized because he got drummed out too soon. Nichols and May. Delightful, delightful. And it was an early sitcom kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, they still remain. Mike Nichols still remains one of our genes. And the two of them together were an experience. Richard Pryor? I did Richard's last show, too. I loved Richard. When I first met him, he was in the village, and he was working for the audience. The audience wasn't paying attention. And he lay down on the piano and did the whole monologue up to the up to the sphere ceiling, <laughs> Richard Pryor, and Richard Pryor's daughter Rain Pryor grew up underneath the conference table. Oh, his, yeah, his mother, oh, his, yeah, her, her mother, her mother works for us, and yeah. uh, and so. But Rich, Richard Pryor was a genius.
2: So we we mentioned that you've worked with so many of these people. Who's the funniest person that you never got to work with? The person you wish you'd gotten to work with? Who you did not?
5: Wow, boy, I have worked with. I mean. Peter Sellers and, uh, jeez, that would be a tough question. Uh, uh, you did work with Peter Sellers? Yeah, yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. Funniest
2: person I never got a chance to work with. Maybe, would it be a woman, like a Lucille Ball or somebody?
6: Well, I
5: did. with See, you I did? worked with with all those people. Yeah. With Lucille Ball I did. Funniest person I never got to work with maybe Donald Trump. <laughs> Here we go. Teeing it up. What do you have to say about him? How much time you got? Um, what, is, what is this? What is this, uh, a 500-page documentary? Do whatever you need to do. Well, Donald Trump Trump is dangerous because he's very effective. And first of all, he just blasts and blasts. And then you say, well, wait a minute, that's a lie. He says, and another thing. And he goes right past it. We've got to be very careful of Donald Trump because it's hypnotic. Mm -hmm. And there's half the country agrees with him. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very concerned about this next election. I think he could win it.
6: Mm -hmm.
5: And the Democrats can't seem to find their ass with either hand. Mm -hmm. They now find (laughs) a viable candidate, and now they get rid of him. No, no. So Donald Trump, Donald Trump, without knowing it, and if he wasn't so dangerous, he would be funny. Last thing, what makes you laugh the most today? This interview. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. All right, babe.
2: Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that, and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg, and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.
4: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
5: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.